0: Liberal Fix is brought to you by Blue Push Media, news important to progressives and liberals across America.
1: Good evening and welcome to this Friday night edition of Liberal Fix Radio. I'm your host, Keith Brackett. It is Friday, March twenty fifth, and as you probably noticed I've been absent for a while. I've been working on the campaign, uh, Bernie Sanders presidential campaign in both Nevada and Arizona, so I didn't have much time to do the radio show. Um Today our guest will be Thomas Cohan. I hope I pronounced his last name right. Um, uh, maybe when he joins us, he can correct me if I, pronounce if I pronounced it incorrectly. Um. Hello, it's Tom. Hello?
0: I'm on my cell phone, but I'm in your queue, it says. I pressed one, but uh, and it still won't work on the other phone, so I don't know what's wrong. Call me at 617-738-7253 or get me out of the queue here somehow. I'm on my cell phone to you.
1: Hey, this is Keith. Can you hear me? Yeah, Keith. I'm on my cell phone. Oh, great. Um, Okay. (laughs) All right. I apologize to our audience. We apparently had a little bit of technical difficulties there. First, I think Tom had trouble getting in, and then I think it bumped me out of the show, and I was talking, and nobody could hear me. But anyways, I think we're on the air now. So, (laughs) Um, again, I'm the host, Keith Brackett, and my guest is Thomas A. Um, let me make sure I pronounce the last name right. Is it Kohan with a silent C, or do you pronounce the C? It's it's Kohan, but what you said is fine. Okay, close, anyways, Kohan. Okay, and he's the George M. Bunker Professor of Work and Employment Relations at MIT's Sloan School of Management and co-director of the MIT Institute for Work and Employment Research. He's also the author of, of a recent book um, that we're going to talk about called the Shape, Shaping the Future of Work, what Future Worker, Business, Government, and Education Leaders Need to Do for All to Prosper. And so it's a very interesting book, and I recommend people read it. And um, how are you doing this evening, Tom?
0: I'm doing just fine. Glad to talk with you, Keith.
1: Okay, great. Yeah, I'm excited about this, too. So, um, And so to start with, I guess you've spent most of your 30-plus year career studying ways to improve the quality of work. Uh, In that time, the country has seen a lot of economic ups and downs. Yet the situation today feels to you to be particularly worrisome. Uh, Why is that?
0: Well, unlike uh, just normal business cycles, we've been in a a situation where wages have been stagnant now for 30 years. And since uh, the end of the Great Recession we haven't rebounded uh, at all in producing the kind of quality jobs that we need. We lost a lot of good quality jobs over the last uh, decade. The ones we're creating now uh, at a slower pace than we should tend to be lower wage jobs and not enough good jobs for the next generation. And so I'm deeply concerned about uh, the situation for young people entering the labor force who are falling farther behind in terms of uh, job quality, uh, income compared to previous generations coming out of school and not getting the kind of career-oriented opportunities that uh, they're going to need to improve their standard of living. So if we don't do something now, they are destined on average to have a lower standard of living than uh, we enjoyed.
1: Yeah, and that's certainly – I mean, I think you see that somewhat in the current um, discussion of economics and politics where you see – a lot of young people coming out with uh, degrees and maybe not being able to find work at all, or, or, or at least not work that's commensurate with their degrees, or not the kind of work that pays maybe as well as what their parents might have earned. Um, and so, in a lot of ways, our, our current economic policies, I think you argue, are out of date. Um, just how out of date are those current economic policies? And um, maybe by way of comparison, who is the typical worker when the New Deal labor? And e- and employment policies were created, and why have we seen no systemic overhaul since then? Well, in the 1930s, the
0: typical worker, the image of the typical worker, was a blue-collar worker uh, who worked for a very large firm, stayed with that firm for a long period of time, uh, and basically uh, enjoyed having a wife at home to take care of family and community responsibilities. So today, obviously, our workforce is more diverse. We have more women in the workforce, single parents and so on. People are moving around. They're not staying uh, with the same firm because there isn't mm-hmm. as much employment security. And so and the, the, the firms are, are they're, they're small firms. There are contract firms, temporary help firms, uh, independent contracting arrangements. So all of that has changed dramatically. Why has it been so hard to keep up with these changes? Well, labor and employment policy tends to be the most difficult political uh, uh, issue in the whole array of domestic policies to uh, to build consensus around. And so even in the 1930s, um, collective bargaining legislation was the most difficult to uh, achieve. And uh, we've had over uh, a 40-year impasse over trying to change labor law in this country, even though the evidence has shown quite clearly that our labor law is broken, out of date, doesn't work anymore. But the gridlock between business and labor has not been able to uh, been uh, uh, overcome. And it's even worse now. Uh, obviously, nothing is getting done constructively uh, uh, in Congress. And so uh, we've got to break this gridlock and we've got to uh, bring the public into this debate in a way that uh, they haven't been engaged uh, in the past
1: and many, I, I think there's a lot of changes going on too, and some people might argue that globalization and technico- technological change and forces like that have make it inevitable that recent, uh, the sort of harmful trends that you identified will continue, but you would probably disagree with that assessment. Um, why? Well, globalization and technolog-
0: technological change will continue,
1: but it's been with
0: us for a long time, and we've been able to. Adapt to changes uh, with appropriate strategies and investments, and uh, public policies uh, that allow us to grow the economy where the new opportunities exist. We've got to get back to that commitment. Uh, yes, globalization makes it more difficult, and so we're we've lost about one third of our manufacturing jobs, and those were quite a few of those were good-paying jobs. Uh, so we've got to get ahead of the, the game and create the next generation of industries, both manufacturing, uh, high technology services, uh, information technology. And that's going to require more investment, uh, both private investment and public investment. And it's going to require American firms to recognize that uh, they have a stake in this economy uh, in creating uh, opportunities uh, to uh, to grow so we have a strong consumer base that can afford to, to buy the products of American business.
1: And what other period in American history did we see what might be considered similar economic disruptions and a similar need for fundamental changes in policies, institutions, and practices?
0: Well, we have to go back uh, certainly to the 1930s uh, to find uh, that kind of a period. Uh, we were coming uh, uh, through the Great Depression. Uh, the agricultural economy had given way already to the industrial economy, and we still didn't have uh, basic uh, protections uh, for workers. And so um, there was a uh, economic crisis. There was also a political crisis. Uh, people were afraid if we didn't do something to deal with 25% unemployment and people living in what they called Hooverville uh, shanties in cities, um, that there could be serious uh, political uh, 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 reproduction, uh, repor- uh, revolution, perhaps, even. Uh, so uh, what happened is uh, we got the New Deal with unemployment insurance for the first time. We got uh, minimum wages for the first time. We got Social Security. And finally, we got collective bargaining protections for workers. The only other period like that since perhaps was uh, the 1960s um, when the cities were exploding, civil rights uh, revolution was occurring, um, and we got a a lot of legislation uh, providing collective bargaining in in, uh, the public sector. Uh, We've had other crises, but we've missed the opportunity to to respond. For example, even in the Great Recession, I thought uh, the first year of the Obama administration, was a year where we could have gotten some things done, but the politics didn't develop uh, uh, in a way that uh, uh, produced the kind of transformation in employment policies that I think uh, was needed then and even more needed now
1: yeah for sure and and I know um a lot in your book you mentioned and, and I think some people are familiar with sort of the what you might call the post war social contract that run, lasted from 1945 to roughly 1980 when wages and productivity moved upward together. um, Where did that uh, social contract come from, and why why do you think it lasted for 35 years?
0: Well, for one thing, we had institutions in the labor market that well matched uh, the nature of the economy. Uh, We had large firms, and we had unions that were growing and unions that had uh, uh, significant bargaining power. And so uh, in the late 1940s, the Auto Workers Union negotiated uh, an agreement with General Motors that said we're going to set wages uh, at uh, uh, the average rate of the increase in the cost of living and the uh, productivity increase. And that formula then uh, spread from General Motors to Ford and other auto companies, and then through collective bargaining, uh, it spread Uh, in uh, different ways across uh, other big industries that were growing and expanding. And it was that uh, tandem movement of wages and productivity that helped to build a stronger middle class that helped to uh, keep uh, uh, purchasing power strong uh, through uh, three decades and helped uh, to keep uh, uh, the economy uh, growing uh, very, very steadily. So we have to, get back to that in some way not not to go back to the old days things changed in the 1980s we had uh, the growth of high technology industries we had uh, a deep recession caused uh, um, by the need to bring inflation down we had the growth of uh, international competition and japanese imports and then later imports from other lower cost countries Uh, and we've had uh, significant technological change and so now we've got a figure out a new social contract that fits with today's economy and today's workforce. I think we can do that uh, if we have the political will to do so.
1: Sure. And, and speaking of political will, what, what role do you think the federal government could play in this, in a maybe a coming wave of innovation and where where can some fresh ideas come from that can sort of create a, maybe a new social contract?
0: Well, certainly uh, uh, we've got to have strong uh, uh, private sector investment and we have not seen uh, the business community invest uh, a lot of the resources that they're holding in cash or that they're using to buy back their uh, stock to push their uh, stock prices up instead of making uh, investments in new products uh, and services and expanding uh, uh, their businesses. So we need to get private investment going. We also need to get public investment. uh, What brought us out of the, the Great, Recession, uh, Great Depression in the 1930s was investments, uh, first public works investments and then uh, uh, all of the public investment that was needed to support the war effort, uh, starting in the mid to late 1930s and then extending through World War II. Now, I hope it doesn't take a war to do that, but we know that we can get uh, good job growth and improve competitiveness if we invest in infrastructure. Our bridges, our airports, our roads, our uh, electronic infrastructure and fiber optics and uh, all of the uh, supports for uh, modern communications, all of those lag uh, other countries. And there would be good rate of returns for those investments in terms of just economic growth as well as they create very high-quality jobs, engineering jobs, construction jobs, service jobs to uh, uh, service the, the new technologies and uh, um, businesses and so on. So that's number one. Investing in education has is, is also got high rates of return, and God knows we need to improve both uh, early childhood education, uh, our public schools, and our technical schools uh, uh, dramatically to meet the, the needs of the future. So there's a role for public investment. Then you know we can talk about what we need to do in the labor market and labor policy, and there are equally transformative policy is needed to uh, modernize uh, 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 to keep up with the changes in the workforce. We need to have more flexible uh, leave policies to help working families meet their work and family responsibilities. So that we have, you know, we're the last country in the industrial world not to have a paid leave policy, and we need to change that. We need to fundamentally uh, reform our labor law so that uh, we uh, can help workers rebuild their bargaining power, not only through traditional collective bargaining, but through all of the new ways that workers are organizing and through building positive, constructive partnerships with businesses um, that we know uh, can produce high levels of productivity and good customer service. So transforming our labor policy, transforming our our policies to uh, meet the diverse needs of of our workforce, making sure that we uh, start to enforce with more vigor uh, uh, minimum wage and hour laws, which I think we are doing a better job of right now, uh, gradually increasing the minimum wage, not all at once to $15 an hour, but certainly gradually over time so that businesses can adjust to those changes and workers can benefit uh, through the increased income. Those are the changes that we need, and and, uh, and and we've got to get the public to see that these are the positive responses to all of their frustration today, that uh, they should be demanding of our political candidates uh, and then holding them accountable when they get elected.
1: Sure. And then um, given that a lot of our economic activity is uh, – part of a global marketplace now how can american businesses uh hope to compete against say lower wage competitors or in other countries well the only way that that we
0: can compete with low-wage countries is by being more productive we have to invest and have what we uh, refer to uh, as high road firms firms that don't try to compete on the basis of holding wages down Uh, that's not viable in a uh, in a global economy like we have today. But making sure that we're investing in our workforce, providing training and education, listening to the workforce to provide continuous improvement based on their knowledge and skills, making sure that we have up-to-date technologies, pursuing innovations in products and services. Those are the kind of high-road competitive strategies that will sustain high wages or at least... Wages that are improving uh, along with uh, the productivity and economic uh, uh, growth and performance that uh, they help to achieve. So that's the the only way in which uh, we can uh, both be competitive and have uh, successful businesses and have the kind of high-quality jobs that, that we all need and want.
1: Yeah, and no. one of the examples you use in your book, that which I think is, is kind of an important story, is you, you talk about the dramatic struggle for control of, a, I think it was a Massachusetts grocery chain called Market Basket, and you said that that struggle sort of highlights the debate over the very purpose of business. Could, could you maybe elaborate a little bit on that and kind of explain what happened there and why it's significant?
0: Market Basket was uh, perhaps... Uh uh, the most vivid example that I've ever seen of what the country and the public and customers and workers are thirsty for in a, in a business. This was a, a family-owned uh, grocery chain in Massachusetts and New Hampshire. had about seventy one has about uh, seventy one stores, twenty five thousand workers, uh, and basically there was a family feud uh, in the board of directors over who was going to control the company. This is a company that was 100 years old, founded by the grandfather of, uh, of the, the, the cousins who were fighting for control. Uh, and this this company had uh, been a really good employer. It had very low prices, had great customer service, and it provided good jobs with good wages. And it did so because it, it really invested in employees. It, it it held on to its employees. Employees worked there for a long time. They knew the customers. They were very productive. They worked together. The leaders, uh, including the CEO, knew people in the company, paid attention to their needs, really built a strong workplace culture that said, this is our company. But then when there was this fight between um, uh, the CEO and his cousin who wanted to extract more profits out of the company either by uh, uh, getting more um, uh, dividends or selling the company to the highest bidder. Uh, and they, that faction gained control, fired the, the CEO who had uh, supported this good business model. And remarkably, the employees from high-level executives to uh, store managers to frontline clerks to truck drivers to warehouse workers all said, we're not going to stand for this. We're not going to come back to work. We're going to go out on strike. We're a non-union company, but we're all going to go out until you bring this CEO back and bring back the business model that we helped to make this company so successful. The remarkable thing was that customers supported this. Community members supported it. Even politicians in in both states uh, supported it. And eventually, it took about six weeks of pressure, but eventually the board of directors said the only way to bring this business back is to sell it to the CEO who had supported that business model and uh, could bring the employees back and the employees could bring the customers back. So this was, I've never seen anything like this. Uh, I've been involved in this field for, as you said, over 30 years and I've never seen that kind of solidarity and I've never seen the public all rally around. The public saw this in the summer of 2014 and they said, look, this is a business that's a good business. Why are some people trying to destroy it? What are they taking away from us? It's my company. It's my store. It's my employees, and it's my, uh, 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 the people who serve me as customers that are, are going to be at risk here. And we're all going to say this is not right. So it was a big, big, highly public uh, event and uh, really a lesson for everybody that this is what the American public sees as a good company, and by God, when they see it being destroyed, they're willing to stand up and fight for it.
1: Oh, yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. I, I You know, certainly an interesting story. And um, for people who just joined us, we're about half past the hour. Um, we are speaking with Thomas Cohen, uh, the author of Shaping the Future of Work, What Future Worker, Business, Government, and Education Leaders Need to Do for All to Prosper. Um, and uh, I guess uh, a couple companies that people might be more familiar with, I think, illustrate um, the differences that you mentioned between sort of low-road and high-road business strategies. Um, Walmart being probably a, a good example uh, of a low-road business strategy and Costco, their competitor of a, sort of a high-road strategy. Um, if and sort of talk us through that. If Costco demonstrates that a company can treat its employees well and still achieve world-class productivity, uh, why why don't more companies follow that example?
0: Well, there's more than one way to compete. So you see both Costco and Walmart are successful companies on financial grounds. Uh, they both have been profitable. Walmart has grown to become the largest employer in, in the country. Uh, and And so – there, you can compete, perhaps, in some cases, uh, uh, in a domestic economy, like in retail, on uh, holding labor costs down, as, as as Walmart does, as you know, their, their corporate logo or um, motto is uh, low prices all the time, and they do that by keeping wages very, very low, fighting unions to keep them out uh, successfully, and uh, having high turnover, because the Uh, employees are not uh, uh, really providing or seeing themselves as as getting ahead in in the company. And so, but yet the company can be successful, but it produces lousy jobs. Costco uh, competes against Sam's Club, part of Walmart, and it says the way we're going to compete is we're going to try to have a higher quality workforce. We're going to try to hold on to our workforce. That means we have to pay them more. And we have to provide opportunities for them to grow and to become more productive over time so that they can serve our customer needs and have a higher quality experience for customers that come back and are loyal to us and that uh, uh, stay with the company over time and that can help solve customer problems as uh, uh, they experience them uh, in their stores. That produces a more productive workforce and it supports higher wages. The reason you don't see more of these is that uh, there's no pressure on Walmart from employees. They can't unionize because uh, Walmart fights any effort to unionize, and the labor law is so outdated and so broken that there's really no way that workers at Walmart can gain union representation. And so uh, uh, they uh, can get by with it and still be profitable. They don't have a culture like Market Basket that says, we really want to both be successful as a company, but also uh, meet the needs of our uh, employees and our communities. They just uh, focus on their own, uh, maximizing their own profits and, and family and shareholder uh, uh, returns. But so there's no magic. There's no no one way to, to compete, uh, at least in the domestic economy, and therefore uh, there's not enough pressure on them to uh, to change.
1: Sure. Yeah, I can see that because uh, they can argue that they're still making profits and it's working for them, or at least it's working for the people who run the company. So um, they don't necessarily feel they have to change the model. Um, speaking of uh, uh, some of the other companies or things you talk about in your book are sort of different kinds of innovation. So uh, one example is a uh, large healthcare care um, company in giant Kaiser Permanente. Permanente and their Innovative Labor Management Partnership. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Kaiser Permanente is uh, one of the largest healthcare uh, uh, organizations in the country. Uh, It uh, has about 8 million uh, uh, people that it insures as uh, provides insurance for, and then it also provides uh, clinics and hospitals. So it's an integrated both insurance company and healthcare provider. And that uh, really gives it some advantages in in today's market, where we're trying to keep people healthy and keep them out of hospitals and, uh, and and all of that. So it it's got a very good organizational and business model, but it's highly unionized. Has been highly unionized. And in about 1997, uh, a long time ago, um, they had a crisis in labor management relations. Uh, and they had, were losing money and they were having strikes. And finally the union and the, the CEO sat down and said, look, we can keep fighting or we can try to, to figure out a better way to relate to each other. And they built what we, we call a labor management partnership where workers are listened to. They have frontline teams of workers working on improving health care. they got about uh, uh, 3,000 uh, teams uh, uh on the front lines of nurses and technicians and service employees and doctors and pharmacists, all working together to say, how can we improve uh, our healthcare operations and make it um, a better place to work as well as a better place to get health care? Uh, they're a leader in advanced uh, electronic medical records technologies, and they work to solve problems uh, effectively. They negotiate in a very problem-solving-oriented way, and they've been able to sustain this for for nearly 20 years now. Uh, now they still have conflicts, but they can do this uh, because they have have a very productive workforce, and therefore they can also support uh, uh, industry uh, leading wages and, and benefits. Now there's you know it's not uh, that conflict goes away completely uh, in any employment relationship. You know there are differences in interests and they have to be worked through, but this is a way to do it constructively. And by doing so, they've demonstrated a state-of-the-art kind of labor management relationship that is good for their customers. It's a great place to get high-quality health care. It's good for the uh, uh, bottom line. They've turned it around, and they have been successful financially. And it's good for employees because uh, um, they see it as a, as a good place to work, and satisfaction with their work has been going up. Satisfaction with their unions has been going up over the years. So the, it's it's not a panacea, but I think it's a model that we can learn from and we could adapt to other industries and other occupations.
1: Yeah, and, and tying it back a little bit to public policy, I guess, uh, successfully transitioning from an industrial economy to a knowledge and innovation-driven economy requires policy support, uh, maybe roughly equivalent to the New Deal breakthrough of the 1930s, Yet the innovations you talk about are taking place without much support from Washington. Can business do this alone or do they need support from Washington at some point?
0: Business leadership is a unnecessary but not sufficient condition. So we need these uh, innovative employers to demonstrate that there are better ways to compete and demonstrate how you can be successful in today's economy and provide good jobs. And so the, the uh, Costco's, the Market Baskets, the Kaiser Permanente, Southwest Airlines, and, and, and others are very, very important uh, uh, examples to show that uh, we can make this work. But what we are missing is a public policy that says, well, it, it, it may not be in every individual firm's interest to necessarily compete that way. It is in the national interest, and it's in the collective interest of the business community to do so. So we've got to uh, really bring businesses together and start to work on investing together in workforce training so they have uh, the kind of high-skilled workforce uh, that is very productive and that, again, can support a a high-wage strategy. We've got to have a, a government labor and employment policy that promotes that kind of business that enforces and brings up the low road through increasing the minimum wage and enforcing, our labor standards uh, so that we don't have uh, uh, a competitive uh, advantage for those people who are are uh, violating our labor and employment laws. We've got to modernize our labor laws so that we promote new forms of worker organization, not only uh, fixing it uh, so we can uh, allow workers to, to get to collective bargaining if that's what they want, but we're seeing new forms of, uh, worker voice emerge uh, in um, the fight for $15 an hour minimum wage. We're seeing a variety of new apps come along uh, for independent contractors and that allow them to mobilize. We need to help them to find their voice at work. We need to encourage the kind of things like workplace councils that provide advice and consultation uh, on how to improve operations and, uh, uh, how to uh, establish labor and, and employment practices that meet everyone's needs. So there's a, a host of changes in public policy that would support an innovation-driven economy that are needed. We also need to promote entrepreneurship even more than we are right now and make sure that uh, uh, we we have the kind of policies that uh, uh, minimize the difficulty of starting a new business and uh growing that business in ways that uh, support good wages.
1: Yeah, and I I should mention for our listeners, too, that you have advised uh, both President Bill Clinton and Barack Obama on worker management issues. Um, In what ways did each of those uh, executives move things forward and maybe where did they come up shorter or things that they could have done better?
0: Well, I think uh, there were short windows of opportunity when both, President uh, Bill Clinton was elected and then when Barack Obama was elected but unfortunately those windows closed very quickly um, so there was a commission on worker management relations that I was part of during the Clinton administration and uh, but uh, we debated for about two years before we came up with recommendations and by that time the political climate had changed the Republicans had taken charge of the Congress with Newt Gingrich and so on and uh, there was no possibility of of, of moving forward, I think that was a terrible mistake, not uh, to take that long and to uh, to not move forward when it was clear what needed to be done. And then when uh, uh, Barack Obama was elected in 2007 and took office in 2008, uh, everyone felt that uh, there was another uh, opportunity with the great uh, recession and the crisis, but he uh, uh, didn't. Follow a transformative labor policy He focused first on obviously Stabilizing the financial system Which, which was important to keep us From falling into a depression And then focused On health care uh, And the Congress again was uh, Stonewalling any kind of changes And so uh, Those were, were opportunities Where I think with uh, A stronger voice For labor policy We could have gotten some things done uh, but uh, those windows Only come uh, 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 Rarely And when they come um, They don't stay open very long So I think we might, you know, if we're lucky uh, if, if the American public really gets behind um, These issues And says we really have got to get on with them We may have another window of opportunity Right after the, this Presidential election is completed And if, if we do Then we shouldn't uh, waste our time With another study commission We should just act on what we know needs to be done, um, and uh, if we do so, I think we can we can start uh, back on a path for uh, uh, growing the economy in ways that that work better for uh, working Americans.
1: Yeah, and it sounds like I mean if if things go well in 2016 and, and a Democrat wins. Uh, the presidential race, and maybe wins it decisively if Donald Trump or you know sort of implodes or something. Um, your suggestion would be that they should act quickly and not spend a lot of time <laughs> studying it and giving the Republicans sort of time to to um, block it or stonewall it, but act while they sort in those first um, first two or three months when they have a lot of maybe public willpower behind them and, and sort of a something of an electoral mandate to do something and to do it quickly rather than to uh take any time and allow the opposition to sort of um fight back or whatever.
0: Absolutely. Would that and that the, has to start yeah. now. That, that has to start now. I mean, we've got all this frustration and anger that's being expressed in the uh in the voting on both uh, uh the right and the left uh, yes, definitely. uh in the country and and that needs to be turned around and we're still waiting for our candidates to speak out as strongly as we're having uh, this discussion and say look we need to have a strong forward-looking employment policy that rebuilds bargaining power for workers that supports the high-level or high-road business strategies the good employers and rewards them gives them more uh, weight in the government contracting business that enforces and upgrades our basic labor standards. And so that, uh, we take away some of the advantage of the low road, uh, companies that, that exist today, close that gap some way in, in some ways. And then, you know, put us, put us on a path where workers really have, uh, an ability to, to control their destiny and have a stronger voice and can counteract the financial markets and, uh, the corporations that are only focused on short-term profits. And I think uh, I think that's possible, and I think we can do it. Uh, we've also got to continue to invest in improved education and improved technical training so that we make sure that the workers have the skills um, that industry needs to to uh, uh, support an innovation and high-productivity economy. All of that is a package that, uh, that could be implemented with the strong political leadership, but we'll only get that if the American public starts to stand up and and call for it now, and we get the politicians to turn from the angry rhetoric into a positive statement and build some confidence with the the voting public that we can get this done.
1: Sure, yeah, and, and I know like it took a massive investment of the government in gearing up production for World War II to. To sort of bring us out of the Great Depression, and now in the 21st century, it will take, uh, I guess, a similar infusion of a sustained investment to meet the nation's needs for more high-quality jobs. Um, where, however, would that money come from, or where? How can we do that?
0: Well, we we have ample resources, both private and and, and public. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of cash sitting in. Uh, Uh, the corporate bank accounts uh, that is not being invested. I think if there's strong uh, confidence in the future, we can uh, create more incentives for investment uh, in American corporations here at home. We could have a human capital investment tax credit uh, so that there's some incentives to train and to uh, uh, hire more workers uh, here in the U.S., we need public investment as i mentioned earlier the 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 best thing that we could invest in that would be great for the economy and necessary for the economy is infrastructure investments uh other countries have uh infrastructure infrastructure banks that uh, uh cycle money uh, that then gets returned through uh, loans and investments and profits and keeps uh things going uh that those are the kinds of things that uh Uh, would get this economy going that would uh, uh, help us to move forward. We've got tremendous needs for clean energy investments and alternative technologies. There's all kinds of uh, uh, technological uh, innovations coming along in industries from uh, uh, energy to textiles of all things where uh, textiles are turning into a fiber optics uh, industry uh, because we're getting what's called wearable technologies which will help us to generate um, energy by having fiber optics uh, built into our clothing. Those are the kinds of new ideas that are out there. We just need to have the, the investment uh, to get them uh, to uh, a, a scale that uh, produces uh, commercial products and services that uh, keep the economy going. So I I think we've got the resources. We just have to have the political will.
1: Sure. And and so um, I know for many Americans, long-term economic security used to come with work and sort of the model you described of people working for a long time, even with a blue-collar job, working for a company for a long time and maybe a unionized job, and, and that brought a certain measure of economic security. What, if anything, can replace or can we recover that long-term economic security that many Americans used to be able to count on that came along with employment? Well, I think uh, the, the best uh,
0: source of economic security uh, for the long haul is full employment. If we start to tighten up our labor markets and really get the kind of growth that uh, we're talking about here, you will see firms starting to compete for labor again, uh, and do what they can to hold on to workers longer than uh, they have in the past. So that's number one. But we we do have a situation where people are moving across firms. They're not staying with firms uh, as long as they were in the past. Therefore, we have to have portable benefits. So the Affordable Care Act is a step in the right direction. We just have to keep moving and, and expand coverage of it to those not covered and uh, innovating in healthcare, so we keep our costs under control. So that's a step in the right direction. We also need to make sure that we have portable benefits uh, for retirement and for uh, sick leave and for all of the other things that we used to get from our single employer over time. And so, uh, if if for example today I'm working for uh, a grocery store and a gas station part time and a uh, Uh, uber driver for uh, another part of my my uh, income then why shouldn't uh, each one of those pay a proportional uh, uh, amount into a fund that workers control that move with the worker that that work like social security does that build up over time um, and provide the kind of uh, benefits that uh, used to come from a single employer so we've we've just got to recognize that we're going to have a more more mobile uh, economy and therefore we've got to have more portable uh, benefits to make sure that we get the kind of financial security that uh, our parents got through uh, uh, the, the uh, traditional pension plans and social security and uh, uh, vacations and sick leave uh, uh, through their employers.
1: Sure. And, Um, Your book is dedicated to the next generation members of your family, and and much of the book is written as advice to the next generation on what they need to do or can do to make the economy work better for them than it is now. Um, So basically, in a nutshell, what is your advice to that next generation?
0: There's two big messages in in the book to the next generation. The first is uh, to do what our parents all taught us, and that is – uh, get the best education you can. That is, um, first of all, get a, you know work hard in school, stay in school, uh, get a high school degree, a technical degree, a college degree if possible. Um, make sure that as you do that, uh, you you continue your thirst and interest in education, so that and choose your schools and choose your majors in ways that will provide you with an opportunity to get started, but then continue. By keeping your your skills current. The days that uh, you know you went to school and then you started your job and you were done with education are over. Now we have to engage in lifelong learning. So take advantage of the online learning uh, uh, courses and take advantage of continuing education. If your employer provides those kinds of benefits, if the employer doesn't, then go find a job where the employer does. So make sure that 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 uh, we're not losing our skills as as time goes on. So as individuals, that's the the one thing that uh, we need to do and focus on more than anything else. But then there's a second thing, and that is workers need to start, young people need to start to to work together. They've got to invent the next generation uh, labor movement. They've got to invent ways to support each other using maybe modern social media and technology. As I mentioned, there's a lot of apps that are being developed now to help workers figure out who are the good employers in their industry and occupation and who are the lousy employers. And so use those uh, modern technologies to uh, make uh, the employment and labor market more transparent, to reward those employers that are good by, by taking jobs with them and moving away from the ones that, that are, are not treating people fairly or providing decent compensation. So that will help uh, to, to move things forward. But, but build an organ- build organizations that support each other and build peer networks and make sure that our professional associations are continuing to provide training opportunities and providing information on where job uh, growth um, uh, uh, is, is coming uh, down the road. Uh, those are the kinds of things that collectively workers need to do. And then when they are being treated unfairly, then they should just uh, do what the market basket employees did, Um, build support in their communities with their customers, with um, uh, people uh, in all parts of the organization, and stand up for their rights and say, this is not fair. Use modern uh, tools of communication. The market basket employees uh, created a website, created a, a Facebook page, created an outreach, and they won the hearts of uh, people all over New England. That's the way in which we will mobilize in the future, by building coalitions, broad coalitions with customers, with each other, with the general public, showing uh, what's unfair in uh, in uh, the way in which people are being treated, and showing that there's a better way forward. Uh, and I think uh, that there's a possibility that we could see a new generation of organizing emerge um, on large scale in the next decade. Young people know how to do that, and uh, they don't want to be controlled by some big bureaucratic organization, but they do want to have a voice at work, and they want to have meaningful work, and they want to be respected, and they want to uh, uh, work with each other. That's the key to the future.
1: Yeah, so in many ways you're looking at maybe what are sort of I guess, new models for workers um, sort of asserting their bargaining power. I mean, of course, unions can still be useful, but with the decline of the union, you you see other sort of innovative ways of of exercising that power through social media and other means of sort of gaining community support that go outside, maybe the traditional union model. That's right. And And unions have an important role to
0: play in this process. They can help facilitate and support these new coalitions. And in fact, uh, they are are doing so in many parts of the country. The service employees have been the leaders in building the coalitions for the fight for $15 an hour minimum wage in cities like Seattle and in states around the country. Uh, The AFL-CIO, the big union federation, uh, has a young workers network and it's supporting young workers and helping them uh, to figure out uh, how Uh, labor unions need to uh, change to meet their needs. So I think the labor movement is opening up uh, to new ideas and can be a source of strength uh, and coalition. They can't do it alone, and they can't do it just with the old models. Um, Collective bargaining has a strong role to play in the future. It needs to be uh, updated and modernized, and it needs to be supported in new ways by public policy, but it also needs to be augmented with a whole array of these new strategies that uh, uh, are not so constrained by this outmoded legalistic uh, labor law that is kind of a full employment act for lawyers but uh, doesn't really uh, uh, produce uh, the kind of flexible uh, responses that workers need today.
1: Sure. And um, so I wanted to thank you very much for coming on here. And uh, before we finish, I guess um i invite you to uh, let our listeners know where they can go for more information or if you have a website or anything and where they can order the sure. book, things like that.
0: Sure. Well, the best uh, two ways that, that uh, they can they can get the book by uh, uh, a discount that uh, uh, that I can offer uh, by going on my website uh, called speakupforwork.com. It's just one big word, speakupforwork.com. And if you scroll down, it, it shows uh, uh, the book, and there's a, a discount where you can get an e-copy of the book for $7.50 and a print copy for 15 That's the best way to do it. You can also get it on Amazon, but it's a little more expensive there. And so uh, I would urge you to go for the, the discount. That You just have to go through a code process and so on. But I'm also offering, starting on Monday, uh, in fact, an online course that's free and open to the public, uh, to, that where we're going to be talking about these issues and discussing how to move forward. It's called uh, uh, the same title as the book, uh, uh, the uh, How to Shaping the, the Future of Work. And you can find that by just typing in mitx. Uh, dot org or just mitx will get you to uh, the courses and just look for my course. Shaping the Future of Work. You click on it, you can register and participate as, as people want. They don't have to take the full course but and it's free, but you you can see the materials, you can engage in discussion forums with others uh, about uh, their ideas for how to improve uh, uh, work opportunities for, for everyone. And uh, we will see if we can't make some, some progress uh, uh, through this educational forum. And so I'm particularly excited about that because that reaches um you know thousands of people out there in the workforce both in the united states and around the world and so uh, i'd encourage uh, anyone uh, who's interested in this to join that join the conversation and uh, see if we can't make a difference but fundamentally then the, the 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 challenge and the opportunity that we have is in this election campaign get out there demand that uh we turn this angry rhetoric into a positive strategy and vision and keep asking the candidates concretely, what are you going to do and offer these ideas to uh, uh, the politicians and then uh, hold them accountable uh, uh, after the election uh, is completed.
1: Absolutely. And uh, we'll do our part to try to make that happen as well. And and once again, I want to thank you for, for taking time out of your evening to speak with us and and hope you have a wonderful rest of the weekend. And I want to thank our listeners for listening again. It's been a while since we've had a live guest on the show between my campaign work and other things. It's been (laughs) a long road since the last time we were on here, but I was glad we were able to uh, make it happen tonight. And uh, we'll clean up, uh, as far as editing, we'll probably edit out the little um, glitch at the beginning with the thing, so it'll be a clean interview when when we rebroadcast it. But thank you again uh, for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful weekend.
0: Thank you very much, Keith. Good luck to you.
1: You bet. Thank you. Bye-bye.